Hello Woodworms, I'm Ray Defterius and this is the Hand Tool Book Review, the podcast for people who love woodwork and love reading about woodworking too. Have you ever wondered about the great religious debates of our time? For example, whether a bevel up plane is a better option than a bevel down plane? Or whether wood planes are easier to use than metal body planes? Perhaps you're confused about the seemingly limitless number of plane models out there. Well, today's book is the first of three books dealing with the topic of hand planes, and hopefully by the end of the next few podcasts, you'll be in a position to decide which of them is the right book for you. There's no debate about the fact that hand planes have a mystique all of their own, and while a chisel or a saw is arguably more important in a beginner's tool chest, there's no doubt that you're going to need at least one plane early in your hand tool career. In fact, I'd be surprised if you don't end up with at least three branch planes and any number of supporting planes, from block planes to speciality joinery or moulding planes. The first book I'm going to review on the topic is The Hand Plane Book by Garrett Hack. Garrett is an internationally renowned furniture maker who has been featured in many fine woodworking publications. He also embraces a more conscious style of living and resides on a working farm where he writes, gives lessons and creates beautiful furniture. He's published two books, the other one being Classic Hand Tools, and both were published by Taunton Press at the turn of the century. The book follows a nice logical flow, beginning with a discussion of what planes are, the history of planes, the mechanics of how they work, and tuning. The middle chapters cover the planes by function, which I think is a great way to organise them. So we have planes for sizing stock, we have planes for truing stock, planes for finishing, etc, etc. Joinery planes, scrapers, moulding planes, and some of the speciality planes are also covered. The final section covers contemporary plane makers and advice for buying planes. In particular, the chapter on what to look for when buying a plane is probably worth skipping ahead to if you plan on getting an antique plane. A complete flip from the previous book I reviewed, there definitely seems to be more sympathy from the author to collectors, or those with the squirrel syndrome, modern day TAD, tool acquisition disorder. In fact, the chapter on buying planes starts with this quote, if a tool appeals to me, I keep it. After all, it can always be sold tomorrow or the next day. I enjoyed the advice here that was framed about how to buy antique planes. Buy the best condition you can find, buy tools you love, look everywhere. Read it carefully, but unfortunately some of the advice only resonates once you've been burnt. The bit where the author suggests that you carefully check the thread of the screw in the cap iron to make sure it is in good condition, it's easy to gloss over, but for me it burnt a line on the page. There's a record number three in my workshop that has this exact problem. And unfortunately, that makes the plane functionally unusable, even though I got it for a good price. The author also covers the debate on leaving patina versus cleaning in this section. I'm going to go out on a limb and suggest you completely forget about the resale value and clean the tool to the level you like. I remember an interesting conversation I participated in on the net, which was about someone restoring a tool without messing up the japanning, because this would devalue the tool. I'd suggest something different. If you're not paying north of $100 for a plane, strip it and repaint it all you like. Make it your own, hang it on the wall, and smile at your new colour scheme every time you use it. Neon pink Stanleys might not be everyone's thing, but if that makes your four-year-old daughter happy, go for it. I bought a few antique planes that I repainted with enamel. Admittedly, blue, not pink, 
but I also stripped the handles down and dyed them a rich mahogany. The reality is that they were $30 planes when I bought them, so a coat of non-original paint and a lot of cleaning made them more valuable when I resold them, not less valuable. I received nearly double what I paid for them, because the buyers wanted a nice looking user and didn't care about the collector value at all. And frankly, if you're listening to this podcast and getting together tools for your workshop, you should give yourself permission to experiment. Leave the expensive tools to collectors, find good users, and customize them to your heart's content. If you fettle them well, the next recipient should be your grandkids, or a friend who's getting into woodworking, and not someone who's interested in the resale value of them. I'll be schizophrenic here, and forget about all that advice I gave you about making your own wooden plane in the last episode. Go to the flea market, get a rust bucket scrub plane candidate, and make it one of your first purchases. There's something really liberating about opening the throat of a plane, filing off edges, and customizing it to yourself. I must admit, in the beginning, I was quite intimidated about the thought of modifying such a complicated looking tool as a plane. And yet, taking it apart, filing a screw shorter to make the handle fit better, cambering the blade to a different shape, filing open the mouth, removing rust, they all made me more comfortable with how the plane went together and how it works. In my head, I really just sort of said, well, here's $15 that I'm paying for entertainment, and I considered myself lucky at the end if I had something perfectly functional. If I consider the fact that it came in for undertaking the kids to movies, and I didn't have to throw it away at the end, I think I got a good deal. I've been a lot more comfortable since then, and my current project, which involved fitting a Lee Valley blade to a Lee Nielsen tool, would not have been possible without me gaining some experience on a cheaper tool. There was one quote that I really enjoyed in this section, about collectors of planes. He spoke of the thrill of acquisition and the boredom of possession. It's a sobering quote, and it makes me wonder a little bit about that bid I placed on a post rule last December. Unfortunately, but unsurprisingly, the chapter on contemporary plane makers is dated quite badly. Over the last 20 years, it's an unfortunate truth that many smaller manufacturers have gone out of business, and at the same time, there's some niche companies that are thriving today that aren't covered in the book. The section does have some interesting takeaways, like the insights into how Lee Nielsen makes their bronze plane, and it's clear that the authors try to give interesting information and try to put an informative chapter together. However, unlike the rest of the book, this is one section that I'd really suggest that you validate before taking it verbatim. A nice bonus at the end of the book is a bibliography. It's got some interesting titles in it. I'm going to see if I can find a few of those, particularly that I've never heard of or seen referenced before. But let's go back to the beginning. The start of the book sets out the author's intent quite clearly. Basically, he bemoans the fact that there was no manual with any of the planes he ever purchased. He set out to write the plane manual, and I think it's fair to say he did an excellent job. The introductory section takes you through the origins and history of the plane. Did you know that the modern plane as a tool has essentially been around since 76 AD? Possibly even earlier, but courtesy of the volcanic eruption in Pompeii, we have the oldest known plane, a Roman plane from the 1st century AD. I hear you saying, well that's true of wooden planes, but the modern plane has only been around since the late 19th century. That's not true. The Roman plane was pretty advanced steel infrall type plane. The sole was steel, there were two sections at the front and the back that kept the plane fastened securely to the wooden infill structure. The blade might have been adjusted by a hammer, but in essence the form is surprisingly recognisable. Thanks to the guild system in Middle Ages Europe, not much happened by way of advances from that point up until the 18th century. 
and from there it was just a hop, skip and a jump from wooden planes to transitional planes and metal body planes and the patenting by Leonard Bailey of the ubiquitous style of plane that bears his name to this day. That statement about history is obviously completely Eurocentric. The author does not cover Japanese or Eastern planes in any detail and, and to be honest none of the books I'll be reviewing in the next few episodes deal with Eastern planes in any kind of detail. If you're interested in Eastern planes, I'd suggest that Japanese woodworking tools, their tradition, spirit and use by Toshio Adate is a good place to start. There's lots of interesting snippets in this chapter, discussions on things like the benefits of Sheffield versus Swedish steel and the history of early plane making in America, including the connection between the Civil War and the onset of popularity of metal-bodied planes. He speaks about wooden planes in continental Europe and that companies such as ECE and Primus survived the Stanley onslaught because of a different appreciation for wooden planes in companies in Germany. I found it interesting to learn that planes became so cheaply made and disposable that experiments with single-use non-sharpenable disposable blades were made. Included in this section is the horror of the four-blade plane and the Buck Rogers plane. If you've ever needed to appreciate your tools more, this is a good section to read. After the history of the plane, we move into a section on plane mechanics. What I like in this section is a lot of clear diagrams that break out the plane parts, both of wooden body planes and of metal planes. In particular, a lot of advice you may find is going to refer to parts of the plane. Having two clear diagrams at the start of the book is going to make sure you know the difference between the throat and the wear, the frog and the tote. That helps. I'd suggest you bookmark this page. Unfortunately, it still doesn't clear up that little mystery of why the handle is called a tote in the first place. I'm going to go with the limited internet research I've done that believes it's derived from tote, meaning to carry. If you have a better answer, I'd love to hear it. There's an interesting section in here about the early inventions for adjusting the blade that I found a fun read. The Union Tools Vertical Adjuster looks like it might be a fun plane to own. And there's a lot of pictures here that really spark the imagination like the little coffin smoother with the adjustable iron sole plate. I guess that we need to give more credit to our ancestors. And while the Bailey pattern metal plane is now ubiquitous, it's worth pausing to think about the inventiveness that got us there in the first place. I enjoyed reading about the different materials and the advantages and shortcomings, as well as seeing the evolution of the parts of the plane. One takeaway for me is that because iron is more porous than bronze, you'll need to wax a bronze plane sole more often. That's not something I'd ever heard before. And likewise, while I'm probably not going to rush out and buy a violin maker's plane, it was interesting to look at the little squirrel handles and just appreciate the planes for what they are. There's a good section on the mechanics of how the plane blade cuts, and it'll help anyone understand why aspects like a tight mouth are important if you want to tear out free shavings. In particular, I like the detailed explanation and diagram of what happens when you skew the blade, or the plane. There's a good 10 pages here about characteristics that will make a difference to tuning your plane. I think the author has done a good job of giving you an insight into why small changes can dramatically affect performance. It's a good step up from chat room instructions and debates, which really provide enough context for the beginner to understand. It's certainly a section that I wish I'd read earlier in my woodworking career. Items such as the effect of mass, smooth and corrugated irons, heavier cap irons, more massive plane irons, double versus single, tapered irons, cutting geometry, etc. etc. It's all here. And I think the author strikes a great balance between giving history and explanations as well as practical information that relates directly to using a plane. I learned a lot. Mostly useful, but a few bits of interesting trivia as well.
The only caveat I have on this section is that I disagree with the author's assessment of modern steels. He's 100% correct on commercially available steel, but I'd suggest that aftermarket and premium blades such as Hock, Veritas and Lineelson are probably significantly better than his beloved cast steel. I think this is simply a consequence of the book's age, and not an error of judgement or experience on behalf of Garrett. I think of all the books I've had on hand planes, this is the one that is the most satisfying for those interested in the history and development of planes, while still providing an excellent source of practical information. If you're the kind of reader who enjoyed the village carpenter and hands employed a right as much as the workbench book, I'd suggest this is the hand plane book for you. It's quite an endorsement when ranked up against Chris Schwarz's excellent book. And there are all kinds of interesting segues from the main text. Whether that's about bedrock planes, or how to make an adjustment hammer, or the origins of the Stanley Sweetheart logo. This book has extensive and interesting information. This chapter concludes with a good four or five pages related to the variety of pitches, bevels and back bevels. And again, I think the author has taken the time to explain the theory as well as give you the application in really good detail. And all this theory sets us up nicely for the next section of the book, which is about how we go about tuning our planes. And let's face it, this is information that you're really going to need. Whether you've bought a premium plane or an old user, assuming either is going to arrive in perfect condition depends a lot on what you paid for it. Assuming either is going to remain in perfect condition is a big ask, especially as you start using hand planes, when you are most likely to do something incorrectly and change a setting as a consequence. So take the time to read the section and understand it properly. It's a good investment of your time. If you must, you can get away with sending off your saws every few years to be sharpened, but there's no practical way to abdicate tuning and sharpening your plane. I would also suggest that the pleasure of taking those first effortless and perfect shavings after a good clean, sharpen and true is one of woodworking's most sublime experiences. And I'm not just talking about wispy smoother shavings either. Full width jack shavings and chunky little scrub plane shavings have an allure all of their own. So what does the author cover in this section? Well, let's take a look at his checklist and suggested order. Tighten and shapen the handles. Check the sole and flatten it if it's required. Take the frog apart. Flatten the bed if required. Adjust the throat. Flatten the back of the iron. Grind and hone the iron. Fit the cap iron and leave a cap to the iron. By the author's own admission, this sounds like a tedious list. But his rebuttal is also fair to state. Even a simple thing like the shape of the handle is something you're going to feel every time you use the plane. It's worth your time to get it right. It's a comprehensive section. All in there's 25 well-illustrated pages that will get you ready to start taking some shavings. And there's some good practical advice here. For example, I've often shortened the shaft rod inside a handle to make sure that a handle fits better on a plane. You'll find with the old users that quite often that tote is loose and you can't crank it down anymore. I'd never heard of adding a small shim under the nut cap. And it's these kind of practical hints that you'll be grateful for, particularly if, like me, you started with used planes. I also like that the author is pretty far removed from being a tool elitist. He's far more likely to give you tips on how to repair a handle than to recommend you shell out hundreds of dollars on a premium part. The section is comprehensive, and it's worth stating that everything I think you need is in the section, whether you're tuning a metal sold or a wooden plane. And there's a lot of practical advice for everything from what bevel angle to use to how to put a hollow ground on a plane. The section about using a plane is equally comprehensive. I think that a beginner, as well as intermediate woodworkers, will benefit from reading this section. 
There's coverage of how to set up your bench and how to set up the wood to plane it correctly, and I particularly enjoyed his wedge appliance for planing edges of boards. While this section is not as comprehensive as a dedicated book like Wearings, I would suggest that there is everything you need to know about appliances to get properly going with your plane. Likewise, instruction on how to get the plane ready, adjustments such as lateral positioning of the blade, and depth of cut are well covered, along with some practical tips, such as setting up the frog appropriately. There's a nice little takeaway here on reading the grain properly, although this is one section I felt could probably have done with a few more diagrams to aid the comprehension of the text. However, I think for a book, he does an excellent job of conveying the body mechanics for planning correctly, as far as it's possible to describe an action in a narrative form. I think the author gets this right. The chapter ends with a quick section on troubleshooting common problems such as chatter, clogging or inconsistencies in lateral depth while planning. Again, I felt this section could have been a little longer and with a bit more detail. Then we enter the middle third of the book, and this is devoted to coverage of the planes by function. We start with planes for sizing stock, planes for truing stock, planes for finishing, and essentially this is how we cover off all the bench planes first. Thereafter joinery planes, scrapers and moulding planes, and speciality planes are covered. The bench planes are covered as one would expect using the Stanley numbering system, but as in other parts of the books, there's interesting call-outs and a very good selection of novel planes. The author's thorough in his coverage, you'll find an interesting section that explains how you sort out the three primary truing problems. Getting rid of twist, getting rid of cup, getting rid of bow. There's plans for some winding sticks, and then we're off to work through truing up a typical board. It's sobering at this point to reflect on the fact that an 18th century woodworker would plane about 300 board feet a day. The techniques are covered in detail, and they're all the typical tips and tricks you'd expect here, from how to bookmatch long edges for jointing, how to create a spring joint, and how to plane for a glue-up. Remember in the beginning how Hack stated he wanted to write the plane manual? Well, this section lives up to that name, with detailed operating instructions. In fact, if you're new to planing and want to get going, you could jump to this section and give it a go without reading the beginning sections, other than a cursory glance at the adjusting and troubleshooting sections. And this is not just the beginner manual. Two years into hand planes, I picked up some interesting tips in the section on planing bevels. One little quirk in the section is the author advising you to try and find an antique jointer's gauge and his statement that new ones aren't for sale. This was probably true at publication, but if you're interested, bear in mind that post the publication of the book, Lee Valley released one that will work with the majority of bench planes on the market, about $50 and are called the jointer fence. So if you're intrigued by this section of the book, go to the Lee Valley website and have a look there. I'll also add in here that I've got a brand new one in my shop. Well, it's been used a couple of times and it's gathering dust now. If you're a bit overwhelmed and tempted to get one, I'd suggest that they are best left for power tools and occasional hand tool users. You're going to be creating perfect 90 degree edges by feel in a remarkably short period of time. Block planes are next. And like the other sections of the book, the coverage is interesting, relevant, covers history and development, as well as mechanics, and discussing items that you may be worried about like adjustable mouths and bedding angles. I smiled when I saw the little Lee Nielsen 102 feature as the author's favourite block plane. It's a sentiment Gary Rogowski echoes in his book Handmade. And while I suffer from TAD as much as the next guy, I'm really glad that I bought the 102 and not a more advanced model. If you don't have a block plane, I would unashamedly recommend this over its fancier siblings. It does everything it needs to, it's conveniently sized, and it seems to be used on virtually every project I work on, sometimes in quite surprising ways. 
If I had to choose an MVP for 2019, the 102 would easily win the prize in my shop. Joseph Moxon in Mechanics Exercises said, Joinery is an art manual where several pieces of wood are so fitted and joined together by straight lines, squares, mitres or other bevels that they shall seem as one entire piece. Garrett Hack says, when it comes to fitting joints precisely, no tools are more useful than the planes. Although I rarely cut a joint with just a plane, I use many planes in fitting joints, which allows me a flexibility impossible with machines alone. The remainder of the book covers off a bewildering array of planes, and while there are only half a dozen or so basic joints, the sheer volume of planes that evolved to fit the various requirements of making them is truly staggering. I guess that ultimately the woodworkers before us were just as interested in getting a joint perfect, and it made me smile to think that in some ways the variety of planes were to the 18th century what electronic gadgets are to us in the 20th. The pictures and text clearly convey the author's love of these interesting planes, and at the risk of sounding repetitive, you get all his hallmarks in this chapter. History, workings, interesting sidebars and pictures, as well as advice on how to use and tips and tricks. And this is the format for the rest of the book. Right through to the end bit about buying and collecting. Having a problem with planing rabbits? The solution's there. Want to know the best way to start a rabbit with a wooden rabbit plane? The solution's there. Wondering how to use a dado plane to refine a joint? Maybe you're just curious and content to skim through and read the bits that interest you. Maybe matched planes, or whether a screw-adjusted wooden plough plane is quicker to adjust. Or just look at some pictures of exotic planes, like the beautiful 1872 Miller's Joinder plane, or the 444 dovetailing plane. Perhaps you're interested in mitres, or building a donkey as shooting board. Each topic is covered, lavishly illustrated and explained. To be honest, after about 150 pages in the book, I felt like I was having brain overload. There's just too much to remember. I suspect that when you get to this part of the book, it's sensible to take it in small doses as you become interested in the specific plane in question. I enjoyed mining it for trivia, but I guess in a few months or years, I'd be happy to revisit it, as there'd be sections, not particularly useful today, that have become relevant. So before I conclude my review, I'll just quickly skim through the types of planes again. There's the bench planes 1 to 8, the scrub plane, as well as the historical bevel lap planes. There's a whole chapter about getting the best out of your smoother, with useful tips like smoothing a 90-degree joint properly and smoothing curved surfaces. There's block planes, plough planes and grooving planes, rabbit planes, both wooden and metal, philister planes and dado planes, shoulder, chisel and bullnose planes, router planes, tongue and groove planes, speciality planes such as edge trimming planes, dovetail and mitre planes, hand scrapers and cabinet scrapers, bevel edge scrapers and tooth plane bays, moulding planes, including both simple profiles with hollows and rounds, and the more complicated profiles. There's scratch stocks and panel raisers, chamfers and combination planes, spokeshaves and compass planes. And as always, there's these interesting detours, like the Stanley 52 shooting board, or how to use planes with a lathe, and in closing, some esoteric planes like Cooper's planes, violin maker planes, chair makers, stair makers, coach makers, pattern makers, rounder planes, spoke pointers, hollow augers, shoe pegs, sash makers, spill planes, spelks, blind nailers, butt mortises, and table leaf planes. There's truly an astounding variety. Before I'd read this book, I'd read in numerous places that the spill plane was the only plane where the shaving was the product. The author is knowledgeable enough to bring a few other examples to light, and by the time you've read the book cover to cover, you'll be set up for trivia night with your woodworking pals. 
So in conclusion, the handplane book is 264 pages long and is written by Garrett Hack. You can find the book on Amazon and as at January 2020, it cost $25 for the physical copy and just under $18 for a Kindle edition. I try to find an edition that would let you support the author, but even his website refers you to Amazon, where you'll also find some used copies at decent prices, if that's your thing. As I mentioned at the start of the podcast, over the next few episodes I'm going to be reviewing a couple of books on planes, so in terms of ratings, I decided to get a little bit more granular. I'm going to review each book on a few categories, and I'll probably put a summary edition together in a few podcasts time, where I quickly recap the relative benefits of the different books on planes. This book excels in the history section. I'm giving it a 9 out of 10 for that section. Also very comprehensive, so once again a 9 out of 10 for coverage. And the instructional section is very good, so I'm giving it an 8. Overall, this book is a definite 8 out of 10. The kind of readers I would steer towards this book are those who love detail, history, and the quirks of plane development. If you're the kind of reader who enjoyed Ingenious Mechanics more than the Workbench book, then I'd suggest that if you buy only one book on planes, this is the book for you. So that's it for now, Woodworms. And remember, go make some shavings and share some interesting trivia about planes with your friends, and keep on reading. If you have any comments or suggestions, perhaps a favourite book you'd like to suggest, or one you're considering buying that you'd like to be featured on a future episode, send me an email at handtoolbookreview at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the show, you can find me on Patreon. Any contributions will support the purchase of books for the library and future episodes.